We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Rhodes and I've got a new podcast, the NFL Road Show. Fun and kind of nerdy conversation about the NFL every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got some amazing guests that are joining me. I'll be breaking the huddle with the top stories, previewing games. We'll get you set for the weekend fantasy with our Fantasy Friday episodes. And we'll answer some of your questions as well. So subscribe to the NFL Roadshow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Blue Wire. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. I'm Nick Faye. With me, as always, Jack Manuel. Jack, Nets lost tonight 116-111 in overtime to the Memphis Grizzlies. It was not a very good loss. How you feeling? It was the most frustrated I've been since Carlos Avert sat on the bench in that OKC game. And this might be even higher frustration levels right now, Nick. Yeah, no, I agree. And you guys know, Jack is usually super happy and cheery. I can see him on the video chat. He is not the happy Australian that I love. He is definitely disappointed right now. But as always, you can find the Brooklyn Buzz on all streaming platforms, including otgbasketball.com, bluewirepods, and netsrepublic.com. But Jack, I guess let's start with overtime. We can dissect the game later, but overtime, obviously, it's a game of itself. The game's tied. You have a five-minute period to win. And I think to kick things off, the big surprise was Steve Nash elected to keep DeAndre Jordan in for overtime after having numerous mistakes down the stretch in the fourth quarter. How does DeAndre Jordan get 30 minutes where he has two field goal attempts, nine boards, and is negative five in the game? Jared Allen's plus two, has 15 boards, has five offensive rebounds, 10 defensive rebounds, and is just better. He is a better basketball. He played eight minutes less. When the Brooklyn Nets were playing well, he was playing well. Jared Allen was out there. He was getting the boards. He was showing aggression. He was switching on to guys. Yet, he elects to go from about like the eight or nine minute marker of the final quarter and all of OT, apart from one possession, to go with DeAndre Jordan, whose washed ass cost us the win in a lot of respects. I don't know, Nick. I This is an elite level of stupidity from Steve Nash, a guy that we've given a lot of credit to, a lot of praise to, but he deserves all the criticism in the world right now. Unless it may Udoka or Mike D'Antoni or Jacques Vaughn like, nah, let's keep DJ out there. Them screens are looking good. He's looking good on that rebound and that put-back dunk that was almost there. Absolute trash, Nick. Absolute goddamn trash. And, like, there's so many different ways to break it down, too. Hey, I get DeAndre playing in the fourth quarter. You want to give Jared Allen a break. Bring him back in in the three-minute mark. Let him play the final stretch of the game. Or whatever. You are you like the way that unit's playing. You want to let them finish the game. I get it. Whatever. I wouldn't have done that. But overtime. DeAndre Jordan cannot play 16 straight minutes of basketball or 14 minutes or whatever it is math-wise, 9 to 5, whatever, 14 minutes. So 14 minutes straight of basketball for DeAndre Jordan, who is past his prime, that alone doesn't make any sense. But let's let's go down the list of cons, Jack. So we had DeAndre Jordan. Now, the the second pass wasn't great, but two passes hit his hands from Karis LeVert, driving the lane, which probably could have either elect, uh, resulted in free throws, a layup attempt, or something. But instead, it, it resulted in a live ball turnover, leading to Memphis Grizzly points. And then in the fourth quarter, I, I don't know if I've seen this from a veteran player ever in my entire life of watching basketball. His back was literally to oh the basketball. God. 
he did. He wasn't in that they scored. He set a screen for the other team. Like, what are we doing here? That that was just crazy. At that point, like, yo, you have to pull the player. I don't care if you're a veteran. I don't care if you're one of the best players in the league. Like, if you're doing something like that, that is just terrible stuff. And the hustle wasn't there. And not to mention, Memphis ran the same damn play. They ran a pick and roll with Tyus Jones and Jonas Valanciunas, and it resulted in a basket every single time or a shot that Memphis wanted. Not to mention, he, he was able to stop Valanciunas a few times in the post, but Valanciunas probably got the best of him tonight. And he got him, you know, catching and jumping. But Nick, he had four blocks, though. He had four <laughs> blocks, Nick! All easy blocks. And all blocks, literally the type of blocks where they can get blocked into the play and, like, turn into something for the team. Sometimes he just smacks the ball. I mean, I get it. DeAndre has a role on this team, but this is not his role. There's no reason he should be playing more minutes than Jared Allen, especially in the way that we've seen Jared Allen play. We t- I talked about it yesterday with Nolan Jensen on the buzz recap. Jared Allen's been the third best net, and that was the case again tonight. I mean, you could argue he maybe was the most impactful guy. Yeah, he got beaten in the post a couple times, but offensively he provides that spark with his offensive rebounding and his quick rolls to the rim and defensively he can switch and he can make up so much space and he also has the ability to show on some of those screens so dylan brooks doesn't get 100 free elbow jumpers you know what nick jared allen deserves better than this honestly (laughs) he deserves better than this he's taken middies now you know obviously we saw that in the orlando bubble we we all were sort of reminiscing about it uh, in a certain respect he was just so much better, and it just makes no sense. It's like if a dumb dude down in Australia with a dumb accent who doesn't know that much about basketball can figure it out, then a person who has 25 years' experience playing basketball and coaching and whatever should be able to see that player is better than that player. Maybe I should swap those players, and maybe the game will go better. But no. Without Ja Morant as well, without Jaron Jackson, who didn't play at all, and and thank God Ja Morant uh, doesn't have a fracture, as we heard from Woj. I know that was a really scary injury, and anyone who's played basketball knows the pain that he's going through right now. So good to hear. Hopefully that recovery is swift and quick. But it was just idiocy, Nick. Absolute idiocy that we saw DeAndre Jordan play 30 minutes. DeAndre Jordan shouldn't play 30 minutes for the rest of the freaking season. Yeah, unless it's a blowout in the first quarter <laughs> and you're resting Jared Allen. Like, that's the only way. And I also wasn't a big fan of some of the rotation stuff we saw tonight, especially some of those lineups late. Like, I get playing Chris Gios and uh, Karis Laverta at certain points. I think you should have mixed it up and kind of got Laverta out there with Joe Harris and Landry Shaman a little bit more, open up that spacing and allow – you know, Joe to get open because they pretty much eliminated him from the game late in this game. I don't know if it was the Nets themselves not running enough actions or maybe he was a little fatigued or Memphis, you know, putting a little extra effort and making sure he didn't get the ball. But I mean, it was just tough to watch offensively down the stretch too is because we just saw a lot of two passes and then shoot. You know what I mean? It was like a pick and roll with one player and then shoot or whatever it might be. And like as good as Karis Avert is, that's probably not going to work. You need to get other guys to touch. And the same thing with Chris Gioza. For a guy that's like a pure point guard, I felt like there's a couple possessions. I was just like, yo, your mid-range shot isn't that nice that you should only be passing the ball to yourself and taking it right there. So, I mean, I just thought there were so many issues from the entire team. I don't think – I'm not sure anybody really played well tonight. Yeah, uh, Chris Gioza. Allen. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, TLC had an awesome first half. I thought he was sensational uh, in that opening two periods. But – do, are Chris Chios and Carlos Avert like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving now? Do they just feel like they can ISO and create their own sort of offense and in an elite sort of, you know, manner? No, like, run some freaking sets! Like, Do you and- think that is part of some of the talk we've heard from Steve Nash where it's like, yeah, we're, we haven't really spent much time on offense and we've spent all this time on defense because, like, we'd watch the game and there just wasn't any actions. And it's not like Kenny ran a ton of actions. It was kind of stuff implemented where the team would do it themselves. But we didn't see any of that. No, we didn't. And we heard from Kyrie Irving in the earlier points of the season sort of saying that, you know, it's a lot of read and react sort of stuff, sort of just that sort of synergy. But when you don't have the IQ and execution of elite superstars out on the floor, you're relying on Carol Savert, who is a third best player on on most elite sort of teams, and Chris Chioza, who is like an eighth best player on any sort of, you know, ninth, tenth best player. He's only playing minutes because of the key injuries that are happening right now. I just thought that, Look, I'm not going to say the word that I wrote down in my notes here in terms of the offense, but to, to put it in a more PG fashion, it was trash, Nick. Yeah. It was so goddamn just hard to watch. And it's just like, 
let's just try and move, have some player movement, have some ball movement. And it was just like static, 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 static. We barely saw any possessions in that fourth quarter in overtime where all five guys touched the ball. You know what I mean? It was a lot of just two guys touching it, maybe three guys. It was just terrible. And like you said, TLC was great in the first half. Second half, he cooled off. And to be honest, his two live ball turnovers in overtime really killed the Nets because Memphis was not generating good offense and giving them those two fast break opportunities probably was the difference in the overtime period. It, it was. It, and there was obviously the, the Jeff Green box out that ended up in the foul, um, the foul call, and the Nets I, couldn't even get... I just, that call just drives me nuts, and I get it, it's a foul, but, like, it's so ironic that Brandon Clark, the guy who committed probably five loose ball fouls in this game and didn't get called for one of them, gets essentially the the most game-changing call when they just didn't call him for any of the same fouls where there was plays where he clearly shoved Jared Allen in the chest. It's you know, and and I think as well, I was more frustrated at the fact that the Nets couldn't even get the defensive board because they would have had a shot to tie the game and take it to double OT. It's just like the basic things, or, or the basic fundamentals of quality NBA basketball just went out the window in the final 15 minutes of the game. Yeah. It was just hard to watch, and I mean, there were moments throughout the first sort of two and a half, three quarters where it's like, oh, here we go, there's a bit of energy here, there's the bubble net, you know, everyone's contributing, there's some hustle plays, there's some steals, there's guys jumping in the lane, fast break sort of shots, and I'm just like, all right, here, there's something here, but then it was just like, oh my god, I just, my levels of frustration couldn't, and I mean, some of it is on coaching, and we've probably alluded to that a little bit, but a lot of it is on the guys to be able to, all right, you guys are, are smart enough and have played enough basketball here to be able to, you know, DeAndre, maybe don't hang out in the dunker spot for like 18 seconds. I literally saw, and I'm not sure if you did as well, Nick, and I, I didn't want to tweet it out because it, it's an irrelevant sort of a take. But KD was like, go screen. Like he yelled out to him because the, the, the clock was just running down. It's just like, this is so easy to defend. And the Memphis Grizzlies aren't the... Milwaukee Bucks or the Boston Celtics in that respect, you are making it easier to defend. Kevin Durant, ISO possession. Kyrie Irving, ISO possession. That's hard to defend. A Chris Chios and Karis LeVert, ISO possession. I'll take that as a win if you're Taylor Jenkins and the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, 100%, especially when a lot of the other guys on the floor aren't hitting their shots and making them pay. You know what I mean when they do? So it's just like they're collapsing the paint. These guys are getting there, having to settle for mid-range shots. It just – it was tough to watch, like you said. And, I mean – not to like keep piling on Steve Nash, but I just felt like it was weird that we didn't see Tyler Johnson or Bruce Brown. Like no. the offense is stagnant, and these these are two players that can create for themselves and create for others. You know, Tyler Johnson doesn't do it at an extremely high level, and Bruce Brown probably doesn't either. But when you don't have much of that from anybody but Karis LeVert and Chris Gioza, you need to incorporate those guys. Like there's just way too many sets where it's one player dependent and like you're depending on so much off ball action that you don't even have designed. Like, how do you expect to win? Do you really like it? No player at this point of the season should be playing 40 minutes plus. Joe Harris, 42, Karis LeVert, 38, TLC, 40. Go a little bit deep into the rotation. You've done, you said like in the first game of the season, we want to go 10 deep. You went nine tonight. Throw another ball handler out there. We had, we lost Spencer Dimwitty. We lost Kyrie Irving. Those are two of the best, two of the better ball handlers, if not the best ball handlers on this team. You know, you can make an argument for Karis Avert, but, you know, Tyler Johnson showed plenty in the Orlando bubble. Bruce Brown, I don't know what he's done. Now, I, I, we've sort of said that, you know, I've alluded to maybe like preseason struggles or issues sort of there. And look, he's shown great energy and, and, and been a great teammate on the bench. But I have no idea why these two capable NBA players, capable starters are getting relegated and 27 minutes for Chris Gioza is far too much for my liking as well. You know, I'm cool with 18 to 25 as a max. But, you know, him sort of isoing and taking these possessions, I'm like, he, this is just a miss. Like, he's not, he's better when he's passing. He's better when he's looking for others. His best skill is his facilitation. And it was nice to see him hit those three threes. And I thought that he looked quite fluid there. But a lot of those weren't, you know, pull-up threes that you would see from the likes of Kyrie Irving or whatever. I just thought there were a lot of... Yeah, they were more like patient threes where, like, the defense just literally didn't come out. And he's like, hey, I'm going to shoot the three. And to be honest, I don't even give a shit if he takes step-back threes. Like, taking step-back mid-range jump shots contested over a bigger defender... Like, it makes absolutely no sense. It's just bad basketball. Like, Kyle Anderson was on him, who has, what, a foot almost on him? Like, yeah. literally, and he's trying to shoot a contested fadeaway mid-ranger on him. Like, come on, man. Like, what are we doing here? 
we sort of alluded to that we expected Steve Nash to show some experimentation, a, a bit of openness, a bit of malleability. You know, we didn't expect Kenny Atkinson 2.0 in, in a lot of sort of respect. And we got that. You know, these are the, the level of frustrations when it comes to rotations, giving DeAndre Jordan too many minutes. And it's just like, am I living in a twilight zone? I'm like experiencing way too much deja vu right now. I just thought that there was, it was ours for the taking, Nick. You know, that everything was there, you know. John Morant unfortunately got injured. You know, Karis Avert was starting to heat up a little bit. You know, TLC was looking good. But then the trajectory of the game completely flipped when DeAndre Jordan was reinserted. Jared Allen's intangible energy, let alone his on-court efficiency and production on both ends of the floor, was why we lost the game. Obviously, there are a multitude of factors that we have discussed, but for me, that is the number one thing because, like you mentioned, Jared Allen was our best player out there, yet he played the least amount of minutes other than Torian Prince. Yeah, I, I don't understand. And, like, maybe Steve Nash is thinking Jonas Valanciunas would get the best of him, but, like, they did a nice job of throwing some double teams at him when Jared Allen was out there. And it's not like Memphis is filled up with, like, elite three-point shooting. Like, it was just... It was a bad game on so many different levels, from coaching to playing to effort at times. And I felt like Memphis got every loose ball in the overtime. Like, there was a couple balls, or even in the end of the fourth that quarter. That's not that Jared Allen's out there, Nick. That's what yeah. he was doing when he was out there in the he, third. He was. Fighting like eight other. He had, like, four Memphis Grizzlies on him, and he still got the offensive board. Yeah, and he was ready to punch a couple of them in the face. I mean, he was he was an angry Jared Allen tonight again, and I love to see it. He's... He's becoming a really, really good player, and it sucks that he wasn't given the opportunity to get us the win, where which he deserved to do because of the way he played tonight and how he played in the previous three games. I, I, I still like looking at the box score. We got the stats up right now as we sort of you know go through this. He played 22 minutes. Torian Prince played 19. Jeff, Jeff Green played 24. Landry Shamet played 24. Chris Joseph played 27. DeAndre Jordan played 30. All of these players played more than our best player tonight. And yet, Karis LeVert, obviously, is the fulcrum, and we needed him out there, and he needs to have 35-plus minutes in a game like today. But even then, Jared Allen and Karis LeVert have such awesome chemistry. That's what I was going to say, too, Jack. It's like, ah! the offense sucks. Okay, let's go to one of our best pick-and-roll combos, the one that has maybe the longest chemistry out of anybody else on the team. It literally does, and we didn't go to that very much at all, and it's just like, it was frustrating. 2020 has reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be more efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there's no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching with Candidate instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only site that moves as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get on every possible chance to win the season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today. Take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word, BetOnline, your online sportsbooks experts. And at no point did I feel like we had the best five nets out there from tonight. Like, I didn't feel like at any point where Steve Nash was like, wow, this is a really good lineup. Like, I would have probably closed with Jared Allen, Jeff Green, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris. TLC. I think TLC. Maybe Landry Shamit, but probably TLC. 
Yeah, I, would yeah, probably... I thought Jeff Green was pretty solid, too, and I thought he was a nice matchup for Brandon Clark, even though, obviously, that foul call at the end, but he was the only one that has the physicality and the athleticism to match a guy like that. Four of those five guys you mentioned, Nick, were plus in the plus-minus. So, I mean, we we look at the plus-minus probably a little bit more than a lot of other podcasts because we do one game sample size podcast. So we go, and does that reflect what we sort of see? Well, yeah, it does. Karis Avert, plus seven. You know, the best player, the most important player out there on the floor, even though some of his shot selection was certainly iffy. He's still the best player out there, and you need to be playing your best player the most amount of minutes. TLC, plus three. Yeah, he was electric in that first half, giving us so much energy, um, and obviously did taper off in that second sort of half. Jeff Green, plus seven on the night. Just did a lot of good things. You know, just was... A, a solid service of bullying, much more than Torian Prince taking eight shots in, what, two fucking possessions? I don't know. Sorry, pardon my uh, language. And then Jared Allen, obviously, plus two. And we've made uh, many, uh, many a gripes about the lack of Jared Allen in the, the closing portions of the game, Nick. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm befuddled in a lot of ways. And it's just weird because we expect more. And we just get the, the same thing again. And I get that we get uh, probably more rash and more over hyperbolic in 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 the moment because we do game by game by game sample size like you and nolan probably were a bit frustrated but like me it was just like you know what you take that you know you, there was just a lack of energy and you know the milwaukee bucks lost to the knicks that night as well but there were so little excuses to not win this game this is this could come back to hold the nets if it means like you know a, a home court advantage this is the win that you needed to bank especially after you know john moran went down because you know, what is the offensive talent on the Memphis Grizzlies? You know, Jonas Valanciunas. Got murdered by freaking Tyus Jones and freaking Dylan Brooks. Kyle Anderson in that first half, yeah. slow mo, a dude that moves faster than a, maybe a snail. I don't know, but in saying that, that's full credit to the Memphis Grizzlies for taking the most of and executing much better and pouncing on Brooklyn Nets' mistakes. And yeah. and a lot of that was Steve Nash, and a lot of that was on the players too. Yeah, and even going to the final possession of regulation where Karras took a step back three after he missed one a couple of possessions prior, it's like I felt like he was too concerned with using the clock instead of trying to get a shot that he wanted. It, and obviously it's a tough balance because you want to make sure you don't give the other team a possession, but I just felt like that wasn't a shot. I felt it would have been happier with prop. He, I would have been happy with him taking a mid-range shot there because I think he's a little bit more comfortable with a step-back mid-ranger or one of those weird type of floaters that we'd see. And then you have a chance to get the foul call, like going at the player, especially Kyle Anderson, who had a couple, honestly, just dumb fouls tonight. He had four fouls on the night, and, and they weren't they weren't good ones. Yeah, it felt like there was an inconsistency in their mentality. You know, yeah. they were wanting to drive sometimes and they were just wanting to avoid contact and wanting to get contact and they weren't getting calls and they were sometimes getting calls and then Memphis was getting calls. It And look, you can't, look, we always gripe about, you know, the, the officiating in, in certain respects and the fact that there was the, the missed goal 10. But, you know, Karasovic also traveled to, to end the first half. That was a travel, like, in, yeah. and watching that. And, um, and so it sort of evens itself out in a lot of respects. And it wasn't the officiating that cost us tonight. It was a lack of execution and poor coaching. Yeah, and I think I don't think the officiating was good, but like you said, there still was an opportunity to win the game, and I felt like at times the players allowed bad officiating to influence their effort a little bit too much, which is frustrating. It's hard to do, but you are a professional, and you just got to keep driving even if, even if they're not going to call the calls. And I mean, when Joe Harris and Karis Avert both get texts, usually something's a little bad because they're two guys that don't necessarily yell too much at the refs, especially Joe Harris. That was, I think, his first tech of his career. It was, it was, and um, you know when Joe Harris is angry, normally it's a it's a nice thing for me because you know it makes me feel uh, a bit more pleasant, and you know I like a, a bit of aggression in 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 the people in my life. But also, what did you think about uh, his final shot? Um, it wasn't his best. Step in, step in for the mid ranger, or you thought the three was the best bet? Uh, his midi wasn't on tonight. Yeah, yeah. I, I think his mid-range shot wasn't on tonight. So I think that he looked more comfortable with the three. I don't think it was the best shot in the world, but it was a decent enough shot that you know he could hit maybe six times out of ten, five times out of ten. You know, his I don't. He didn't look comfortable. No, I, I don't think that. I think you know, uncomfortable is probably a great way to describe a lot of this game. There was yeah. just so many for the fans and the players. <laughs> yeah, there was just so many inconsistencies. If we're talking about like it's like a roller coaster, I think that this sort of game, the you know, there was the, the peaks and valleys of you know TLC, and then there was the lows of DeAndre Jordan and you know screening for the opposition. Um, I I I, I, I don't know. There was just a lot of and look, if we go back to the first half, Nick, 
Why is Torian Prince isoing and taking seven shots to start off the Five game? Five seconds into the possession, too. It wasn't even like we're talking about, like, hey, whatever. If Torian Prince has to take the last shot five times in a row and that's just how it goes, whatever. But, like, he literally came down the court and he was like, yo, I'm Kevin Durant. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what he tried to do. That's what he was, like, trying to fill in for. It's like, no, that's not your game, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was happy to see him finally hit a three, I think. Was that the first time he hit one this season? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was, I think, you know, over 11 with, with the Landry Shaman. And I don't know. I, I always, I think, you know, you and Nolan sort of, you know, ch chatted about it on, on, on the last buzz. But, you know, I've had, I have a bit of faith in Landry Shaman much more yeah. than Torian Prince. This feels like, you know, Alan Crabb 2.0, one of the, the, the few blemishes on, on Sean Marks's resume. But, man, I, I just thought he was goddamn awful. And, you know, sometimes you shoot to get into rhythm, but you need to have a level of IQ. And Torian Prince is showing that he's just like, you know, what are you doing? Your decision-making on the offensive end of defense. He's like the Nets' Andrew Wiggins. Yeah, yeah, or Kelly Oubre or whoever. Uh, whatever athlete who can't shoot the ball and doesn't have, you know, great execution, you know, insert Toy and Prince there. So, I mean, I was a bit harsh calling him the worst player in the NBA earlier in, in the night, but he's playing like it right now. And look, it's great. You know, got to the line four times and had a couple of rebounds there, but he's just not adding anything to this team right now. And... You know, Jeff Green, obviously, you know, getting more minutes. There was at least one good thing that Steve Nash did, giving him the, the large majority of the minutes at the, the small forward slash power forward position. But, man, it was just, it was rough time. It's rough for Torian Prince right now because um, my Kool-Aid is uh, getting, it's getting dry right now. Let's, I think it's got moldy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what Kool-Aid what Kool does. I don't think I've ever actually had it before. But in saying that, um, he's not playing well, and he doesn't deserve to be getting rotation minutes. And in, in, in saying that, you know, just give minutes those all those minutes to TLC in in, in the, the next game against Atlanta. Yeah, give... honestly, I I thought this to myself. I would have rather seen Rodion tonight. Yeah, look, there's a there's a fair, there's a fair argument that can be made for it. I I, I wanted to see Bruce Brown. You know, I put it out there on Twitter. I'm like, where's Bruce? Why why aren't we saying him? Play play this man. I, I don't know. What he's done to go from being, you know, a Nets killer in seasons past to being so deep out of the rotation that Chris Jones is getting 27 minutes and Torian Prince is getting 19 minutes over him. I just thought, like, I, and I said this before and I tweeted this out, I just felt like it was a great opportunity to play Bruce Brown and Tyler Johnson, not only for the other aspects of their game, but they're both physical players that play with high energy. And this yeah. Memphis team is super chippy and they're mad annoying. Like that's just how they play. They have guys like Dylan Brooks. They have guys like Jonas Valanciunas. Like they just kind of get under your skin a little bit. And the Nets needed to respond to that with some of the guys of their own, a Tyler Johnson, a Bruce Brown, pick them up full court. Like you said it, Jack, John Moran, Jaron Jackson were out of this game. You play freaking Bruce Brown. He's locking up whoever's playing lead ball handler for the Memphis Grizzlies. Like, he's that good, and they're that bad. Like, they're not a great team. And I thought just that type of energy and those type of defensive stops would have been perfect in a game like this because the Nets offense wasn't cooking, so they needed to win another way, and they just didn't do it. Yeah, big time. Look, heck, Reggie Perry would have been better than DeAndre Jordan tonight. Like, I'm not, like, I might be going a bit over the top here, but Reggie Perry at least gives you energy and engagement. And, I just thought that, you know, it was just so damn frustrating. And the good thing about basketball is that you get another opportunity to sort of, you know, put that ble the blemishes behind you. But, man, they need to execute it. You know, we can't be relying on the likes of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving for, for this 72-game season. We need to get the habits right at the, at this early sort of point in time. And, you know, a lot of the, the positives that we took away from game one and two are, are starting to be overshadowed by the blemishes of, of tonight's performances and a little bit in Charlotte as well. Yeah, and our guy Matt Brooks, who was at the Steve Nash uh, press conference, Zoom conference, whatever the hell we call it these days, uh, Steve Nash says he went with DeAndre Jordan down the stretch to counter Jonas Valanciunas. Oh, my God! Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone who's listening right now. Counter Jonas Valanciunas. He's not Nikola Jokic or Jerome Beat or Anthony Davis. He's Jonas Valanciunas. Yeah. Ah, Nick, Nick, and Nick. And it's not even like Memphis has the type of spacing that prevents you from ever sending help towards him. You know what I mean? Like, they're playing mediocre three-point shooters. Yes, yeah, some of them hit shots tonight, but they're just not that level of player. And, uh, man, it, it's just – it's tough. And, like, I don't, I just don't know. I don't know either. He had – look, for, for the record, Jonas Valanciunas had, Jonas Valanciunas had uh, 14 points and 14 boards on 6 of 11 from the field. Good. Didn't have any offensive boards, though. You know, Jared Allen was the one fighting there and fighting over him. I uh, – 
you know, again, I, I think that it is. In, and whoever asked that question, thank you. You know, whether it was Matt or, or someone else in the Nets media, you know, I was clamoring for that question. I think everyone on Nets Twitter and any fan who watched this game was probably wondering, oh, why is DeAndre Jordan in his washed-ass Timberlands playing out there over a guy who has a level of spryness and athleticism that impacts winning basketball on ways both more than both ends? You know, he fights for boards. He switches out onto guards and wings. He did it like three or four times tonight. And, you know, and I was just like, Jared's going to be fine here. He's going to be yeah. fine. And he was. He, I, I said it earlier and I'd say it again. Jared Allen deserves better. You know, I, whether Steve Nash trades him for whoever else uh, in the NBA, Jared Allen deserves to be starting because he is much better and he's a starting caliber player and he's only going to get better. DeAndre Jordan is getting worse. The trajectories of their career, for those playing along at home, I'm moving my arms just in the opposite ways. It's it like is, the emojis, the one that's going up and the one that's going down. <laughs> like, basically, it is infallible and inscrutable. I don't know if I'm actually saying words that are actually in the dictionary right now, Nick, but it it begs belief. It, it's, it, I don't know why DeAndre Jordan plays over a capable, not capable, above average, really good basketballer at the same position who does the same things but better and also other things better. I, it's, it just seems so simple. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does, Jack, and it's frustrating. Hopefully this is a learning moment for Steve Nash that he can kind of look back throughout the season and realize, like, hey, we should never we should never play DeAndre Jordan in overtime or down the stretch. It just isn't working. Sadly, Jack, we haven't even talked about the worst Nets news of the day. And one of our favorite Nets players, Spencer Dinwiddie, suffered an injury yesterday. It turned out it was a partially torn ACL, which is positive and negative at the same time. It sucks he has a partially torn ACL, but it's good that it was in a complete tear and there wasn't a ton of other damage to his knee. So it's very likely he should be able to make a full recovery. Who knows if that'll be with the Nets, but we wish Spencer the best and hope that you know we can see the best version of him next season. He deserves to get paid wherever he is, whether it's in Brooklyn, whether it's on an opposing team. There is not a better dude in the NBA than Spencer Dinwiddie in what he has shown and what he has turned himself into, to being a, a castaway in Chicago, a castaway in Detroit, to being a guy that deserves to be paid you know, the likes of Fred Van Vliet and Malcolm Brogdon money. Give him $15, $20 million because this man deserves it. He took unders for the Brooklyn Nets in the first place because he wanted to be here. And he... he and obviously we were like, oh, is he going to adjust? Is he going to be able? And I was just like, you know what? He's going to be able to do this. He's going to be playing a crucial role for the Brooklyn Nets come the playoffs. And look, it's partially torn, as you mentioned, Nick. And, he, you know, he posted to his Instagram um, and that he's, 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 he's motivated. And, you know, he's, he's torn it uh, before, you know, in, in January 12, 2014, um, in, in a college game against UW. You know, it was a really lengthy Instagram post. And, and I highly recommend everyone checking it out. Carol Severt, obviously, being the dude that he is, opened up his presser. You know, sending prayers and thoughts out to, to Spencer Dinwiddie, as we all have. You know, I think he, you know, if you want to read it, go read it. But for for me, what I, I want to read the last paragraph, Nick, the last paragraph in a bit, because it just alludes to me that the character and just awesomeness of, of just Spencer Dinwiddie as a human being. He said, so now we're here, a contract-based partial ACL tear, no other structural damage, minimal swelling and cartilage intact, proving the years of work did their job and protected me. Pre-op prognosis, this surgery should be very simple and straightforward. Virtually no non-white bearing period post-op either. Honestly, Spence, your knee looks a lot younger than most 27-year-olds. Awesome to hear. And also he said this. So in summary, if anything, I'm excited because I've made a living off beating the odds. And these odds say at worst, I'll be more than 100% by next season. Next question. Will I miss the road to a Brooklyn Nets 2021 championship? My response, as we've seen before, crazy things have happened. I goddamn hope that if anyone is going to recover before, you know, the Brooklyn Nets are in the playoffs or in the finals, it's Spencer goddamn Dinwiddie because this man is a goddamn marvel. He's a superhero. He's Iron Man. And I can't wait to see him back playing basketball because he's going to be lighting it up. He's going to be driving on fools. He's going to be taping step back threes, sidestep threes on him. He's going to be playing some really good defense as well. Can't wait to see him back and thoughts and prayers up to him. And, you know, he's going to be fine, like you said. Um, his knees are going to be great, and he's going to come back better than ever. Yeah, the fact that there's a period where there's essentially no period where he can't put weight on the knee is very positive because it allows him to get the rehab extremely fast. And ACL injuries have come a long way. I mean, recovering in six months would be an extreme. I wouldn't completely rule it out. I think the fact that the Nets are ultra-conservative, they probably 
wouldn't play him out there, but I think Spencer should still set that goal if that's what he wants to do. You know what I mean? And the positive news too was, I believe he tore his left ACL in college. Yeah. This is his right one. So obviously knee structure, it should be fine. So, you know, obviously we wish Spencer the best. And I will say this, and I don't really want to dive into the contract stuff because I always feel like that's kind of rude because this is a guy's life. But I will no. say there's probably, a, there is a slim chance that he could opt in next year. Yeah, I mean, I saw a piece, I'm not sure if you saw it, Nick, uh, via Hoops Hype, and they were sort of asking different uh, conference executives around the league, and you know, they were kind of split on whether he wanted to opt into that $12 million or whether he you know, could. He'd be one of the better free agents on the market yep. right now with you know, the likes of Paul George and, and Rudy Gobert you know, deciding to, to re-up with their prospective teams. I think that what is interesting is I, I just, whatever happens to him, Spencer Dinwood is going to be fine. You know, and, I, and also, I'll say this sucks too, is because Spencer was the complete opposite of an asshole this season. He literally he bought bought into his role in a contract year, played in this like little glue guy role where he knew his stats wouldn't look nice. He would impact winning, but it wouldn't necessarily earn him this biggest possible contract. And he didn't complain one single time. And he had to do some tough stuff out there, bang around with a lot of guys, being slightly undersized against some of the forwards they would match him up with. And he did a really good job this season. And it, it sucks too is because like, I know a lot of people were like, oh, Spencer Dinwiddie, I don't know how he fits in the starting lineup. But it, it felt like at some point it was going to click because he's a guy that we've seen adjust in the past and it just takes some time for him. And then as soon as he gets full cylinder, it would have probably unlocked something different for the Nets. Yeah, big time. Um, uh, I can't wait for him to come back. You know, He's always going to have a soft spot in our hearts uh, at the Brooklyn Buzz and, and for Brooklyn Nets fans in general. He's endeared himself in, in, in a way that few can. And you know, one of the, the really great stories of just you know, similar to Joe Harris, you know, these sort of guys that are just sort of like, you know what, I'm going to find a diamond in the rough here. And Spencer Dimwini has you know, elevated himself to being a quality NBA player, fringe all-star. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident he's going to get back to there. And um, I'm hoping it's on the Brooklyn Nets, but if it's not, then, you know, full faith and full power to him to, to get back to producing at a, at a really high level. But Nick, did you want to discuss any of the sort of things like the disabled player exception and the ramifications around James Harden that Zach Lowe discussed, or did you want to leave those to the side? Yeah, we could discuss them. I mean, the Nets could apply for the disabled player exception. What is it, like $5.7 million? $5.7 million, yep. And Bobby Marks said that the DPE would uh, see the Nets tax bill go from 58.7 to 82.7, uh, but it actually wouldn't because the tax is based off a percentage of revenue. So... You know, it, it's going to be like He 40. has no idea, yeah. Yeah, it, it, there's literally no idea at this sort of point in time. So, look, there are some guys that are, are certainly out there that the Nets could sort of target. And this is via Russell and Fro uh, on Twitter. And he sort of put out some some different names. Uh, Garrett Temple, Nicola Melli, Ken Bazemore, MKG, James Ennis, Bismarck Biombo, Wayne Ellington, Brad Wanamaker, Ronda Hollis-Jefferson, uh, Michael Beasley, Damari Cowell, Wilson Chandler, Kyle Korver, Alonzo Trier, and Trevion Graham. Not well beat is in any sort of respect of the word. But uh, we need a rotation player, Nick. And Jack, say the first three for me again. Uh, we got Garrett Temple, Nicolo Melli, and Kent Bazemore. Yeah, Garrett Temple. Yeah, I, let's get I think, back. I think that makes the most sense. I don't know. Chicago's look really, really bad. So maybe they might be willing to do anything. If you could send them maybe even like Rodeons or something for them, or I don't know what it might be. But something to consider. Obviously, we've been hoping Trevor Ariza would be bought out at some point. That'd be another guy. The interesting thing that we could put George the Nets, Hill. yeah, George Hill for in a possible trade. I think the interesting thing for the Nets would be if they apply for this disabled player exception, and then they still have their mini mid-level exception. I I don't know the cap ramifications on this, so I could be completely wrong. So double check me if you want. But then they'd have two non-minimum deals they could offer to buyout candidates, which would be substantially more than any other team would have. And the Nets still have, you know, future first rounders in their current first rounder for, yep. for the upcoming draft in 2021. But the likes of, you know, the, the Clippers and the Lakers and these sort of teams can't necessarily offer other teams. You know, we saw Marcus Morris go to the Los Angeles Clippers and, and make, you know, maybe not the biggest impact, but he was certainly, you know, a, a key part of their rotation uh, towards their success or lack thereof. So I think the Brooklyn Nets are in somewhat of a prime position to add some level. I would... Look, George Hill is probably the top of my list, Nick. And, you know, we know how OKC love those first rounders. Give him TP, give him a first rounder. And, you know, let's be done with the TP experience and get a guy who 
I think would be, you know, uh, probably start for the Brooklyn Nets and George Hill. You know, I'm all in on the George Hill experience and he just knows how to play effective basketball, an awesome shooter, really, really great shooter. And I think would be a good leader as well, a good defender. You know, it makes so much sense. You know, that or Trevor Reza or both, uh, if I'm greedy, to be honest as well. Yeah, I would like George Hill. I might not even start him. I think he'd almost be a perfect second unit player to have with Karis LeVert because he's not necessarily your true point guard. He's more of that secondary ball handler, almost a 3 and D point guard. That's why he fits so nice in Milwaukee. So that'd be a great thing. I mean, if we're talking about issues the Nets are having. I think also, you know, the what we discussed all offseason and the problem that we said this team would have is that lack of wing forward defender. And I think they're lacking the elite athlete. You know what I mean? Like the other big athlete to throw against guys like Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington, Brandon Clark, just some of those guys. And I don't think you want KD to bang with those guys every single night of the season. So I think that's still going to be something Sean Marks revisits. You know what I mean? Like it's even almost still more important than even adding another guard because I think there's guards in-house that could step up and be better if Steve Nash gives them the opportunity. Yeah, look. Aaron Gordon is the name that obviously does spring to mind, and if the name that sprung to mind for the past. That's like, a, I just kind of set you up for that, just the way, like, Harris the virtue that no look pass to Joe Harris. <laughs> Only good moment from tonight, Nick. It was so damn pretty. I, um, I, I mean, uh, I, my body flooded. It was so damn gorgeous. It was, you know, the uh, a, a, a mini bright spot in, in an otherwise pretty lackluster night from the Brooklyn Nets. Nick, I, I, because there's just a, a lot of sort of net stuff, you know, bumbling around right now. I wanted to ask a little bit about the James Harden stuff. We heard Zach Logo on the pod, on on the low post today, and when he was talking about the the ramifications of of the Brooklyn Nets trading for for James Harden with um, Spencer Dinwiddie's injury, he said this: Spencer Dinwiddie's health did not make or break the Nets' ability to get James Harden. It's unclear to me, frankly, if those teams have had any anything resembling a conversation uh, about James Harden. Let's make that clear. I don't sense that there's been hardly any traction there at all. And maybe the way the Nets have started had them thinking, why are we messing with this? Uh, the key to Brooklyn potentially training for Harden has believed to be centered more on their ability to put a young star from another team in a three-team package. Do you agree, Nick, or do you actually think that the... Spencer Dinwiddie would have been part of some level of package and maybe you have to replace it with like, you know, a, a, maybe a, a more unprotected first rounder if James Harden is still on the cards because, man, he looked pretty good as fat as he is and as chunky as he is and as much of a, a dickhead he is off the court. And I said that on JVT. He's still an elite basketballer. Yeah, I don't think Spencer was always a big piece of the trade. I think there is options on the table where he wasn't maybe even included because I heard that rumble around from some of the NBA media. I'm not sure exactly who it was, but it also was the fact that Spencer was on an expiring contract and that didn't necessarily provide a ton of value for Houston. So I'm not surprised. But where it does hurt Brooklyn is the fact is Spencer could have been used in that three-team trade or four-team trade going somewhere else, helping them either acquire another asset or being part of the package that, quote-unquote, gets Houston that young player they want. Yeah, we'll wait and see how it pans out. We, we chat enough about James Harden, and you know, we don't have to necessarily revisit that. But a final thing I wanted to get to, Nick, and you might have some other sort of ideas about what you wanted to touch on, but Malika Andrews put out a, a pretty interesting stat sur- surrounding the the Nets with and without Durant and Irving on the floor. Uh, KD and Kyrie have played 95 minutes together this season. The Nets have outscored their opponents by 64 points in that span. I know Zach Lowe also said that the starting unit is like plus 30 in net rating. You know, it's, it's gargantuan. They've been awesome. Um, the Nets have played 49 minutes without either player on the court and were outscored by 18 points. Do you think that, that Steve Nash needs to start staggering these dudes? Yeah, I always thought that should have been the case. I, I expected, I think we actually discussed maybe this in the rotation talk we did preview-wise. Like, I knew that KD and Kyrie wanted to play a lot of their minutes together, but I don't think we've seen, like, KD and Kyrie on the floor by themselves for, like, longer than a minute stretch, if that. You know what I mean? Like, it always makes sense to stagger. And now with Spencer being out, it's a higher priority. Like, I think, ideally, what you want to have as uh, for as the Nets you want to have two of your three best players in the court at all times. So you want to have a combination of either Karis Avert and Kyrie Irving, Karis Avert and Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? Something along those lines because it's just so hard to put that pressure on one person. I mean, obviously, if it's Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, they can do it for stretches too. But I think it's tough to ask Karis Avert to do that for stretches in this game if he doesn't have any other type of like ball handlers out there. Yeah, I mean, we don't have the, the, and obviously losing Spencer Dinwiddie as well. I think that 
Steve Nash is going to actually have to show some coaching chops now yep. and not just be the cool dude on TikTok. And uh, <laughs> again, I've, I've given him a, a little bit fired. Woo! Yeah, I've given him a lot of shit tonight, but um, you know that's what happens when you get emotional, Nick. You get a bit too rash and a bit over the top. But um, yeah, I, I think that it makes the most sense. You know, it, it seems to me that it's almost like an old school OKC way of thinking, where it's just like you know Russ and KD would always play together, and then they get subbed off by Scott Brooks, um, and obviously you know. Kalsovitz out James Harden uh, to some sort of extent. So maybe there's a, some sort of similarity that he's sort of taking from there. But, you know, I think that he's going to have to experiment and not show rigidity that, and I love using that word because, you know, this is not the season to go and, and stick to your guns and stick to your laurels because especially if it's not working because Katie and Kyrie are awesome and they feed off each other. They have great synergy. But, you know what, sub out Kyrie a little bit earlier, bring in Karras and, and have and have Karras and, and, and KD cook a little bit or have Karras and, and Kyrie cook a little bit. They've always, you know, we've seen the, the sample size in the past that they've been good when they're on the floor together. And unless you wanted to add something else, Nick, we do have confirmation about what you alluded to earlier about that OT possession. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else. I just think Nash needs to get more creative with his rotation. This isn't soccer. This isn't hockey. You don't have set stuff where you sub those guys in. You you have to change. There's feel of the game. There's matchups. And it it I obviously know that you don't want to completely change your game plan for every team you play, but you do have to match up sometimes when you're at a disadvantage. And I just think that's something we haven't necessarily seen from Steve Nash yet. And to be honest, like a lot of the stuff in the wins was just the players being so good. Like and them just playing at such a high level against Boston, Golden State, and they didn't play that way against Charlotte, and obviously didn't play that way tonight. But there's still areas where they could have put themselves in better positions, so things were easier, and they didn't have to be these elite, amazing players and shoot 45% from three. Yeah, uh, as coaches, you are your job is to give your players the tools and systems to be able to succeed at a high level and execute at a high level and. There are some parameters in, in this point of the season that we, you know, we're, we're quite high on. You know, when KD and Kyrie are there, you know, the the, the synergy and on offense is certainly a, a bit better. Obviously, they're just greatness and, and gargantuan talents certainly override that. But also, the defense looks pretty good because KD is showing something and he's jumping at shots. I don't want him necessarily jumping at, but it's a good sign that he has that confidence to to go up and try and block PJ Washington and Terry Rozier, even if he does get put on the poster. But what I was alluding to, Nick, is this is via Alex Schiffer off The Athletic. On the OT possession, Joe Harris said the play was drawn up to ISO Karras on the block. Harris was used as the emergency option. So you're a smart man, Nick. Oh, well, I mean, it was pretty – Like, I mean, it was kind of almost obvious. And I'm just like, TLC, why are you not making that pass? I don't know if the angle was too hard or he wasn't – and, like, I'll be honest. If you're not confident to make a tough pass as an inbounder, you shouldn't be inbounding. You know what I yep. mean? I also kind of thought it was weird to have – I think it was TLC, right, inbounding? Yeah, it was TLC yep. inbounding. You think it would be someone who's a good passer. Like, I'm not trying to throw shade at TLC, but I, I can't remember in my head ever seeing him throw, like, an elite-level pass. One quote as well from Alex Schiffer here. Steve Nash said the team was tied on the second end of a back-to-back, -back, was trying to get the ball in Karras' hand in that late OT possession. If they're tired, why are you playing nine guys? And why are you playing them 40 minutes plus? Why aren't you doing what Nick and I alluded to? And, yeah, we're going to be – podcast coaches here in, in that sort of respect. But you've got the depth of talent to be able to alleviate those concerns and alleviate those the, the, the tiredness and the lack of execution on both ends. Stop here. Call a timeout. Insert it, dude. Try and just get wacky with it. It's like he was afraid to be wrong in front in front of KD and Kyrie that were sitting on there. It's just like, you know what? I better play DJ a few more minutes because or Spencer or SK, uh, Kyrie Irving and, 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 and Kevin Durant are going to get angry at me because I'm, I'm not playing their best friend. You know, the, and I the don't even think it's the case anymore. Like, I, I don't think it is either. After the game, maybe with Kyrie, I'm not sure, but with Kevin Durant after the game praising Jared Allen the way he did, it seems like he knows that <laughs> Jared Allen is the better player and he's going to continue to improve and be possibly one of the X factors for the Nets in the postseason. DeAndre Jordan is not going to be that guy. He's he's past his prime in that aspect. And like you said, guys are tired. Play some of the rest of the roster. Sean Marks gifted you this beautiful 15-man roster with playable two-way players too, and yet you still elect to not use everybody to the best of their ability. Yeah, and look, there's a quote that from, from Matt Brooks uh, as well on his Twitter. You know, obviously speaking to... Uh, Chris Chiosa right now. Chris Chiosa says he, Reggie Perry, Bruce Brown, TLC, and Rodion Skouritz, the quote, stay ready group, spend a lot of time at practice together. You guessed it, staying ready. Hmm. Now, if they're ready, use them. Use them, Steve. Just use them, mate. 
the Bruce Brown thing I just find so strange. That's the one thing that it's hard to grasp because Sean Marks obviously values him or he wouldn't have traded for him. You know what I mean? Like he went out and acquired this player. Maybe he was just trying to turn Jan and Musa into a usable player. Maybe that's the case, but he attached a second round pick. You would think he believes Bruce Brown could have an impact on this team. Tyler Johnson, you want to say he's just a tag along at the end of the bench? Fine, because they signed him on a minimum contract to be the 15th man. Fine. But Bruce Brown, they literally traded for to fill a need. Yep. Yeah, it, it it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, obviously, you know, there was a part of me in the back of my head that I'm like, hmm, maybe Steve Nash is going to get wacky with him and throw Bruce Brown in the starting lineup to, to go on John Moran. You know, that was the optimist in me. But yep. obviously that optimism. Uh, it's why I'm the pessimist on the pod, Nick. It's why I always downplay stuff um, in, that, in that sort of respect. Um, we got a, another quote from TLC. He said he thought the Gris- Grizzlies defense stuck with him and Joe Harris more in the second half and let Levert beat them more off the pick and roll. So, look, I think that there was just team basketball in the first half, you know, divulged into hero, Karras, Chioza ball. And I'm just like, that's not good basketball at the end of the day, as we alluded to earlier in the pot. And I think the Nets were almost being lazy because, sure, they were playing better defense maybe in the second half. But a lot of the reasons they got so open on a lot of the screens in the first half was there was multiple screens set from numerous players or there was a lot of action with the ball and the players going from court side of each side of the court. You know what I mean? Instead of just like, let's run this little action, try to get open for two seconds. Oh, it doesn't work. Let's stop. So it's just like the team didn't have the effort. The coaching was bad. A game that we'd like to forget. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe that's the, maybe that's the title of, the, of this pod, Nick. I think you figured it out for yourself. <laughs> just talking through this sort of therapy session, as we like to call them sometimes uh, with these Brooklyn Nets. Nick, I'm not sure if you wanted to make this an hour pod and divulge into the Forbes article on on the the story of, of Sean Marks' ascendancy into the GM uh, position for the Brooklyn Nets. It was a for the if, even if we don't, um, it's a fascinating article, and I highly recommend everyone check it out. It's um, on Forbes and their sports section, and you know it sort of goes into you know where Sean Marks came from and you know the behind the scenes of the hiring process, and it's a uh, it's a really good read. Yeah, Jack, if you want to summarize it a little, I didn't get a chance to read it yet, then I'll probably check it out after the game. But you mentioned that it had some really nice details in there. Well, there's things like, you know, Calipari apparently was was scattered quite heavily and he wanted to to have full autonomy over not only the coaching, but sort of like, you know, Doc Rivers and, and Tom Thibodeau in seasons past and sort of be the coach GM, which I thought was like, okay, wow. You know, one the of worst the, idea possible. <laughs> and thank God it didn't happen. Apparently he wanted a 10-year, $120 million deal. Um, so thankfully that didn't happen and Sean Marks apparently almost didn't take the job because you know they were trying to lowball him Mikhail Prokhorov was trying to lowball him with just like a one million dollar contract which is what he was getting when he was in San Antonio uh, as a sort of assistant GM but then you know he's like you know what I'm not taking this job unless you at least double my pay and they did and you know uh, the rest is history sort of there so there's a lot of different sort of things and the one surprising thing was that apparently Sean Marks was highly intrigued by the vacancy um, that he said saying that quote this job is mine and then one person who knows Marks well put it, his ego is the size of several small planets combined. I'm just like, my dude Sean Marks got the ego. And I'm just like, you can tell that's probably like a friend just throwing him under the bus. But uh, it shows that, you know, Sean Marks has confidence in, you know, his abilities and, and his, his intelligence. Yeah, I agree. And I mean... The ego thing, like, isn't super surprising based on the way he talks sometimes. Like, you can kind of get some of that sneaky confidence where he doesn't necessarily come out. He's smart with what he says to the media, but you can kind of read some of his body language at times. I'm like, okay, this guy feels pretty good. I mean, like, let's be honest, though. Like, he deserves to have confidence. He turned one of the worst situations in the NBA into what looks like a championship contender this year and has a chance to go to the finals for more than one season. Yeah, and another thing as well, uh, Mark stood out obviously in the interview process because there was the likes of Brian Colangelo apparently being scouted, uh, Arturis Konashovis, um, and, and a lot of other sort of candidates that were in the sort of running. And also, um, uh, who's the dude in Minnesota right now, former Houston Rockets assistant? Um, uh, tip of my tongue right now, too. You look it up while I give you yeah. a, a little bit more of, of, of behind the scenes here. Apparently, Mark stood out in the interview process and it was he won over uh, Irina Pavlova mm. and also Sergei Koshenko. And he said that he didn't want to guarantee anything, especially given all the challenges that he faced, you know, with all the lack of picks and the, the disastrous nature of, of where the team was at. 
but he said that he believed a five-year rebuild was feasible. And look, you know, it, it kind of did happen. And it's not that there haven't been some missteps along the way and quite a bit of luck, you know, not getting Tyler Johnson and Otto Porter Jr. with those sort of offer sheets and a bit of bad luck with the Alan Crabb and, you know, Offer and Torian Prince. But, you know, he, uh, he's done a lot of good things. And that five-year rebuild has happened. The Brooklyn Nets are now within an, within uh, that sort of realm of, uh, of elite teams that could be fighting for a championship. And uh, Gerson Rosas. Gerson Rosas. There we go. Yep. He's there president of basketball operations. That's why, uh, and Scott Layden is the general manager, but uh, he's the guy that makes all the decisions, Rosas. But uh, yep. like you said, so yeah, I mean, it, it's been remarkable to watch Sean Marks kind of grow too into the the person he is. And like you said, there's been a few blemishes on there. You mentioned earlier today, the Torian Prince contract isn't great. See how that goes for the rest of that time. But uh, maybe it could be used in a trade so we kind of forget about it. Yeah, look, if we get George Hill or Aaron Gordon out of it, then uh, I'm going to be happy, Nick, because um, I think both of those guys, all one of those guys, can can add something to the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, Sean Mark said he's not done yet, and hopefully he is, and hopefully he's still looking for ways to make this team better. One final thing I wanted to bring, Nick, you know, trying to be an aggregator, it's a, it's a little bit tricky, but um, uh, on here, I think it was Brett Ford, I think his name is, he was a key part of the hiring process. He said, on paper, hiring Sean didn't make sense since he was only four years removed from the end of his playing career. But he was prepared, he had strong values and principles, and believed in collaboration. He pulled the right levers, but I don't think he cut any corners. His ability to communicate is his number one strength. That sounds a lot like the Steve Nash hiring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, communication is huge, especially in the NBA, when you have so many characters, personalities, egos to deal with. I mean, it also makes a lot of sense why they're good friends. Yeah, communication, collaboration, didn't make a lot of sense, surprise hiring, all these sort of things, so... Look, hopefully Sean let him know, hey, I got your Bruce Brown for no I didn't get your Bruce Brown for nothing, Steve. Hopefully he's having some tough conversation with him. And um, you know, communicating is his number one strength. Hopefully he's communicating those a lot of our frustrations. Hopefully he's listened to the buzz, Sean. Come on, mate. You gotta show some love to your Southern Hemisphere uh, Australian brother across the transatlantic. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting. I, that's a dynamic I haven't really thought much about until tonight is how Sean Marks and Steve Nash will interact because everything was so gravy early on or this is kind of the first hiccup. You know what I mean? And like, we don't know how much is Steve Nash, how much is Mike D'Antoni drawing the out-of-timeout plays or who's influencing that, but maybe it's time for Steve Nash to kind of unlock himself a little bit and be willing to get uncomfortable and be creative. That's what I'm looking for in Atlanta. I'm looking for adjustments and changes. Willing to get uncomfortable. We're not Houston, Nick. Come on, mate. <laughs> Calm down. You know, we, we might want James Harden, but we don't get too uncomfortable down here um, because, you know, we, we know what can happen. We see, we're seeing what's happening there in, in Houston Rockets land. But, yeah, I think I'm inter- intrigued to see, you know, whether Katie and Kyrie are playing, you know, one or, or both of those matchups, uh, whether one is or whether both of them are. It, it's going to be interesting to see how their sort of load management, quote-unquote, is, is dealt with because, you know, they are... So damn important, you know, with any sort of team. When you don't have your two best players out there, imagine the Los Angeles Lakers, who apparently, another person argued to me, has greater depth than the Brooklyn Nets. Imagine they're without AD and LeBron. You know, they're not going to be winning many games, but the Brooklyn Nets obviously have a, a really great third player, and, you know, we saw what happened in the bubble, and, and the depth is, is clearly on play. But, you know, no excuses. And if Spencer's healthy, they probably win this game. If there's a lot of reasons why they could have won this game, Nick, and that's probably uh, another good one too. So, look, hopefully a lot of these ailments and frustrations and gripes that we have are ailed with a, a big win over the Atlanta Hawks or two big wins over the Atlanta Hawks. But either way, we'll be recapping one and both of them going forward. But fingers crossed, whether it's no Kyrie, no KD, or they're both back or one's back, as long as we're winning... Uh, it, it makes uh, makes us a lot happier on this podcast. Yeah, I expect both to play. I think it was just a rest thing. I, f- I mean, I don't find it interesting they both rested at the same time, but I think moving forward without Spencer, it would make so much more sense to rest one on the first night of a back-to-back and rest the second on the other night of the back-to-back if you're really concerned about winning games in the regular season. Unless you're not and you don't really care and you just want to make these guys happy and let it go to the postseason and kind of get in things and groove that way. But like you said, I think the Atlanta is going to be a good test, very potent offense, 3-0, and and you can't mess around against that team because they are talented and they can blow you out real quick. Well, yeah, you've got to be locked in defensively with those guys. One thing I wanted to ask because it sort of sprung to mind, Nick. We heard Katie obviously at the end of the Charlotte Hornets game saying you know, he wants to play back-to-backs. And we heard behind the scenes, I think it was Malika Andrews and some other Nets reporters sort of say that the decision to to rest 
uh, and, and load managed KD was made the evening of the, the Charlotte Hornets game, whereas Kyrie's resting was made the decision uh, in the morning uh, of the game. Do you think that KD and do you think that, you know, KD had any say in it or was he overridden by Steve Nash and Sean Marks and, you know, the analytics crew and the training crew behind the scenes? Because uh, it seems to me that, I mean, both of these guys are obsessed with basketball. So does the, the tactics of their load management need to sort of change, like, you've, like you mentioned? I would say the only thing that this situation just made the most sense for load management is that it's the third game in four nights, and it's the first stretch of that during the season, and both guys haven't played basketball in so long that, like, I get that. Now, if it's a back-to-back in the middle of the season and there's two days rest before and two days rest after, then I think that's maybe where you try out Kevin Durant or you try out Kyrie Irving in that back-to-back setting, but... I don't know if you have to do that. Like I said, maybe it's that, you know, you play KD night one, you play Kyrie night two. I don't know if they're open to that. To be honest, like Kyrie's load management is a little bit different than Kevin Durant's where Kevin Durant's is, I think, something more set in stone. He's coming off a torn Achilles and hasn't played basketball in 18 months. Kyrie played last season, only played 20-ish games, but his injury isn't as likely to be re-injured in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be more that Kyrie Irving is an injury-prone player, and we're trying to yeah. protect him from himself in a lot of ways. Like, you know, that one-legged fadeaway. I'm sure you and Nolan were raving. You and Nolan certainly were raving about it on on the buzz yesterday. So, yeah, it's about sort of management going forward, and it's going to be one of the many storylines that we continue to analyze uh, on this podcast. And man, Nick, um, I'm hoping for a win because I'm not feeling too good right now. But um, I'm feeling know, I'm a little sure. better after we got it out for an hour. So yeah, I mean, it does help. It does help, and. You know, somehow we get an hour out of a, a game recap. Um, I don't know how, but, you know, it's therapeutic in at least some way. Yeah, and obviously Nets fans moving forward too, and we've mentioned this in the past, the game sucks. You want to get thoughts out, feel free to tweet me and Jack at the JMan JBT at OTG Knicks. And as always, you can find us on all streaming platforms, including OTGBasketball.com, Blue Wire Pods, and NetsRepublic.com. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.